with us tonight without a Bible. There's some men coming up the aisle right now, and you just get their attention by waving your hand or something, and uh, they will get a Bible into your hands. We want you to be able to read along with us as well as uh, listen to us on these Sunday evenings, our journey through the Scriptures. As we left last time in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, it wasn't one of David's more uh, shining moments, but uh, God's got the grace for those seasons in our life. And so we're told that he uh, left uh, Gash and, uh, Gath and uh, Achish, the king of Gath. Chapter 22, David therefore departed from there and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And the cave of Adullam is about uh, 10 miles from Gath, about 12 miles west of Bethlehem. Why would he go there? Because he was born and raised in Bethlehem. And uh, as a shepherd in his, of his family flock, he wouldn't, you know, they didn't just have like 10 acres outside the front door. When you were uh, to uh, shepherd a flock, especially a flock of any size, in Bethlehem, because of the aridness of the terrain and all, you would have taken those flock, flocks north, south, east, and west in in great distances. And so he heads back in his flight from Saul. He gets out of uh, uh, Philistine territory and he moves back into territory that was very, very uh, familiar to him in terms of terrain. Additionally, it brought him closer to his family because his family was centered in uh, in Bethlehem. And so he's looking now. He doesn't have very many friends. And so he's looking for in his flight from Saul, Saul has uh, mobilized the entire nation to try and find David and to kill him. And so David is looking for what friends and, and who on the face of this planet can he turn to and expect some kind of level of loyalty from them. And of course, he turns to his, his family and uh, those that knew him uh, very, very well and, uh, and, and would be likely then to protect him. Uh, in the danger that he was in. Additionally, because of Saul's persecution of David and his attempt to kill David, uh, there can be there's absolutely no doubt that Saul was sooner or later going to turn and probably sooner rather than later turn his attention on David's family and, uh, and attempt to kill them also. So he goes to Adullam. There's a lot of very large caves in that area capable of of housing large numbers of people and so it works all the way uh, around there for him and so when his brothers in his father's house heard of it they went down there to meet him so again their life is now as as in as great a danger uh, from Saul as David's life is and so uh, a king that would attempt to murder David would think nothing of executing his family and so they're all now essentially either at the point or very close to becoming refugees uh, because of Saul's madness. And everyone who was um, in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented, how, just a show of hands for the number of people here who meet that, those three criteria, gathered to David, and so he became captain over this number of people, and uh, they were about 400 men uh, with him. And so he becomes a captain over a small army at this 
point, and we really see how the Lord is working all things together for good, even though it's kind of hard to see the good for David at this moment in time. But David has, for all the problems that Saul has been to him, David has been a high kind of military officer in the Israeli army. And so he knows uh, Israeli military tactics. Uh, he's been trained in those things. And so he's quite accomplished and skilled in, uh, in warfare. And uh, so he knows the strategies of his enemies. He's probably among the best of, of Israel's officers before he was uh, you know, run off by, by Saul. And uh, so men are starting to gather to him. You see three characteristics. I don't know if you would say, oh, good, let's start a business with this group uh, or start anything with this group. Number one, they were in distress. The Hebrew carries the idea of being oppressed. Uh, when, when you've got a guy going sideways the way that Saul is going sideways right now, and he is very, very unstable emotionally, he's unstable mentally, he is surely unstable spiritually, then his kind of wackiness, and it's a dangerous wackiness, isn't just being directed against David. He was probably creating a lot of enemies at this time uh, because of his decision-making and, and all. And so there probably was a, a, a very widespread abuse of power and oppression of, of people directed at, at others than David who were every bit as righteous as David, but what can you do with the king? He's gone crazy and... And uh, this is what he's doing. And so David wasn't the only one that was suffering from this by King Saul. And so Saul's making a lot of enemies at this point in time that understand exactly where David is and they're joining uh, David. Word travels fast in, uh, in, among God's people and it traveled past, uh, fast here. They were also in debt. They'd all maxed out their plastic and they were just looking for a way to, praying for the rapture so they wouldn't have to pay it all back. That's not what's going on here. So I said, boy, I, I'm so in debt. I want to join the foreign legion, you know, French foreign legion. Um, they evidently had been reduced to poverty because of taxation on the part of, of Saul. We're going to see in a moment that David or Saul was abusing his power. He was giving pork and he was uh, political pork and giving um, advantages to the tribe of Benjamin, which means you are abusing the other 11 tribes in order to do that. And so there's, there's poor public policy with Saul, without a doubt, with, again given his uh, instability, oppression, all these things, and it's leading to a larger and larger number of people out of work and, 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 and uh, reduced to poverty. And then discontented. I don't know if you're discontented today. I'm discontented with where our nation is going, but they felt discontented with where their nation was going under Saul. And so I understand all that these guys are feeling at, at the, that moment in time. And the idea of being discontented, it literally means they were embittered. They have become very disappointed in their king. They have been, become very disappointed in their government. They have become very frustrated with Saul and their government and what life has become under Saul. 
And so this is the description of the men that are now seeking David out. He's not soliciting, putting flyers out around uh, the, you know, the land and saying, trying to put an army together to overthrow. These people are just trickling in by the ones, the two, the fives, the tens, until at this point he's got five, uh, 400 of them. This, they're going to continue to enlarge uh, uh, numerically. Now, the interesting thing about these 400, it's a very difficult season that all of them are in. Nobody said, hey, I think it'd be a really good character building experience to have a really lousy king that is, is corrupt and, and, and half mad and demon possessed and, and is ruining the whole country. So we can have some character to develop and I can find people that will be just as frustrated with him as... By the way, I'm not, dealing, I'm not addressing a local political situation for those of you who are on the edge of your seat. I love the Trilaterals Commission. Just kidding. I'm just poking fun at you now. On, on the, so, so I'm not dealing with anything local or anything national here. This is stuff that gets played over and over and over again throughout history. So nobody looks and says, hey, let's do this because it'll kind of flush out the people that really care about this country and really care about God and we'll discover each other and we'll, have, uh, we'll know how to unite. But the fact of the matter is, is that all of these, this very difficult circumstance that, that they're in, remember, they're willing to join David, and David's got a price on his head. If they catch David, they're dead too. So this is no small commitment that they're making to David here. But, but, so, this is a really difficult place that these 401, including David men, David's men, are. But something wonderful happens when people stand up for what is right, and they obey God in the circumstance, no matter what the circumstance is, and then they go through this experience together. together. Happens all the time on the mission field. Happens all the time in the advancement of the kingdom, uh, the gospel, and the kingdom of God in this world. Is is there is a uniting together and a camaraderie that occurs. These four hundred men are going to stay loyal to David, and David loyal to them all the way to the end of his life. You look at this and you say, who in the world is going to make an army or make anything out of people where their chief characteristics are those three things? And yet God is going to take this very, very rough, ragtag, motley crew, and he is going to turn them into a very formidable, small, though formidable army, and they are going to ultimately become known not only in David's day, but all the way through to our day as being David's mighty men. So God knows how to make something great out of even people from uh, very, very uh, humble beginnings here. So they're a very wild group, but God knew there was a lot of good things inside of them, and he's going to work all those things out. And then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. And so he brought them before the king of Moab, and uh, the king of Moab accepted uh, David's request, and they dwelt uh, with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now Moab was no... Uh, Moab was a, was a country that was uh, right opposite of Israel across the Dead Sea. 
So it's modern-day Jordan today. And Moab was no close friend of Israel. So what David is doing, again, he recognizes that his parents are elderly. They can't be fleeing Saul with him, running all over the land of Israel. So they're not physically in a place to do that. So he's got to find a safe place to put them so they don't end up getting slaughtered in the middle of the night by King Saul and his men. So he goes to Moab. Moab in Israel, the relationship was one of hostility. So he knew if he delivered them into Moab, Saul is not going to go into Moab and the king of Moab is not going to turn these, his, his parents over to Saul. Remember also that David is, uh, was the great-great-grandson of Ruth the Moabitess who married Boaz when we went through the book of Ruth, he had part of his bloodline goes back into Moab. So when he brings his family back into Moab, he is bringing them back. He has family there that he is delivering them to with the king's uh, permission. And so he gets a parent, and I mean, here it is, honoring your father and your mother in the middle of this mess he's in, and, and yet this is the kind of character that he has. Now the prophet Gad said to David at this point in time, don't stay in the stronghold, don't stay in Moab, you're not going to be the king of Moab, you're going to be the king of Israel, and so don't stay here, depart, go back into the land of Judah, which is southern Israel where David came from, and so David departed, and he went into the forest uh, of Hereth. And when Saul heard that David and his men were with him, and uh, it, when Saul heard, you get do-overs, don't you? God's gracious for that. All right, let's start in verse 1 all over again, really. Just to, okay, I'd provoke you to wrath, wouldn't I? Verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered... Now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah. So apparently this was like a local landmark there, uh, this great tree in, in the city with a spear in his hand. This guy's not going anywhere without a spear. Most kings have a scepter in their hand. This guy doesn't go anywhere without a spear so he can impale somebody at a moment's notice. So he's got a spear in his hand and all of his servants are uh, standing there uh, all around him. And then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, he said, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse uh, give every one of you fields and vineyards and make all, uh, you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me. There is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there, he, can't, he can't say either of their names at this point. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. And so he reminds these men, all of them of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So these men all constitute kind of his uh, cabinet or his the highest uh, officials, probably military officials in, in his uh, under his authority there, and uh, so his, his inner circle. And we see here one of the things that Saul was resorting to. It's an indication of a lack of leadership in a leader, and certainly in a politician. He is holding these people in line with himself, and he is buying their favor through what we would call today pork. 
And so he reminds them, I'm giving you land, I'm giving you fields, I've given you vineyards, I've given you stuff that David, as a descendant of the tribe of Judah, he'll never give that to you. So he was loading up, here he is, he's kind of the president in office, and he's loading up all kinds of resources going back to his home state, going back to this particular uh, tribe. And pork is as ugly uh, 3,000 years ago as it is uh, today. It's interesting that when David becomes king, even when he runs into into trouble as as a king, And it would be advantageous to him to probably buy some people off by giving them positions that they don't deserve or giving wealth to powerful people. He never does it. He never follows Saul in this characteristic. A man was either worthy of the position and had a concern for the greatness of the nation out of their own personal relationship with the Lord, or he wasn't going to give them anything. He did not muddy the motivations of people with this, uh, this kind of thing. Listen, even today, God help us and God give us godly leaders, both men and women in this nation and in this world that we live in. But when you have a true leader rise up in a particular scene, people want to follow leaders. They will follow leaders, and you won't have to buy them. If you have to buy them, it is an indictment against uh, your ability to lead or people's willingness to follow you, and you're not a leader at all. And so he's buying them off in this way. And he accuses them of being a part of some conspiracy of, of this uh, covenant, of, of some conspiracy of in alignment with Jonathan that has caused David to turn against him, like David turned against Saul. Everything's backwards in this, this guy's uh, mind. And so he accuses them of, of secretly supporting Jonathan and David. He plays the victim here, like he's been a victim of somebody else's uh, wrongdoing. So obviously he's feeling very isolated and uh, paranoid and desperate. And uh, but the cause of it isn't uh, Jonathan or David. The cause of it is his own relationship with the Lord. Now these men that are around him, I mean, they got to be doing this sidelong glance thing, you know, every time this guy opens up his mouth because they know he's uh, he's unraveling here. Uh, but uh, and they know that none of these accusations have any basis in reality. And so here is Saul. It's interesting. At the end of uh, verse 8, he finishes his rant. And what is the response of all of these high officials in his government? Silence. (laughs) Silence. Nobody knows what to say to this crazy uh, accusation. And so nobody felt sorry for Saul at all. Nobody wanted to comfort him. Nobody viewed uh, him as a victim, viewed David or Jonathan as, as a bad guy. So he's... He's in, a, he's in a bad place as a leader. Now, regrettably, I mean, it would have just been wonderful if no one had opened their mouth on that scene and just let, let Saul sit in his own silence. But uh, regrettably, uh, someone does break the silence, and it's this man that we saw last week. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. He was a herdsman head herdsman of Saul's flocks, and he said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, which was the city of the priests in that day, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, who was the high 
priest. Remember last time David went into Nob and he got the showbread to eat uh, and he got the weapon of Goliath uh, as, as a weapon for himself and his in his uh, flight from Saul. And so Doeg now reports this incident to Saul and he reported how uh, Ahimelech, the high priest, inquired of the Lord for David, then gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. This is just terrible, terrible what Doeg does here in verses 9 and 10. Because what he does on... On one level, it is factually true what he's saying. But he leaves out so many other facts about the situation that it makes it appear that Ahimelech is in alignment with David in a rebellion against Saul. If he had filled in all of the blanks and he was interested in telling Saul what was true about the situation, he would have said, David came into the city of Nob, Ahimelech saw him coming in. Ahimelech was terrified to see him come in without an escort. He pointedly asked him, what are you doing? Why, uh, what are, what are you, why are you without uh, you know, military personnel. And then that David then said to him, I'm on a mission that Saul, that David lied to Ahimelech. That's why Ahimelech then helped David. He leaves all of that out. And so while what he says is factually true, it's so incomplete that it deceives. It is essentially a lie. You can, you can give the right facts in, in, uh, relaying or portraying a, pertin- per, uh, a certain situation, but leave out enough of the other facts that if I leave the other person with a complete misunderstanding of the situation, is it's, go- it's as good as an out-and-out lie. And that's exactly what he does here, because Doeg is trying, uh, he knows, man, this, King Saul's got all the money, he's got all the power, he's the one that hands out all the positions around here, and so he wants to please the boss, and so this is the story uh, that he tells to, uh, to King Saul, and it's going to end horribly. And so the king uh, sent to call Ahimelech, he sends out, bring Ahimelech right now, the priest, the son of Ahitub, bring all of his father's house, bring all of the priests, uh, who were in Nob, and so they all came to the king. And Saul then accuses uh, Ahitub, uh, or, or Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And Ahitub said, Here I am, my lord. I mean, there's not treason in his heart at all. There's no desire for insurrection. He's as innocent as can be. doesn't even know why he's been asked to come to this. And then Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you've given him bread and a sword? You inquired of the Lord for him that he should rise up against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Put yourself in that high priest's place, Ahimelech's place. I mean, you're, you're in front of a, a madman at this point in time, and it's, it's his own fault he's in the condition that he's in, but your heart would just immediately sink. That this is, this is the understanding that this guy has of my encounter with David. And you know that you are uh, uh, completely innocent uh, to his understanding of the situation. And so Ahimelech, there's so much to respect in this man. And basically what he does is he, he's, he, he doesn't head into any kind of like groveling or anything like that. He stands up and he defends himself 
by simply giving uh, Saul the true story, all of the facts of the matter. And so he said and answered the king and said, And who among all of your servants is as faithful as David? Who has a, a high, why would I suspect him when he came for anything he would ask for me? He's your greatest servant that you have. And who is the king's son-in-law? Saul, he's your son-in-law. You'd probably take off my head in a normal understanding of things if I didn't give him what he asked me for. And who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? I mean, David, he, he comes and he goes because you give him orders. How could I know that you didn't send him to receive these things from me so that he could accomplish the orders that you've given to him? He said, did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me, uh, lest let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of this little or much. I knew that I didn't know that there was a rift going on between you and David. I just I helped him in all innocence and related to the accusation that I inquired of the Lord for him. I have I did not inquire of the Lord for him. Now apparently he had in the past. Uh, Ahimelech knew David very, very well because apparently David in his um, service to Saul would go to Nob, go to the high priest and say, what is the Lord saying to do in this situation or that situation? So David had a relationship with Ahimelech already. And so Ahimelech just looked and said, why would this visit out of a concern for knowing the will of God be different than any of the other visits. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all of your father's house. So he, he pronounces a death sentence on all of them. And, uh, uh, and the king then said to the guards who stood by him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. That's the order that he gives them. But the servants of the king, pork or no pork, would not lift their hands to strike the priest of the Lord. Saul asks them now to do something that is so crazy and so wrong in the eyes of God that even they won't uh, cross that line. And the king then turned to Doeg and said, You turn and kill the priest. And so Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest, and he killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Killed them one after another with his own hands. You know what it's like to kill one man with your own hands with a sword? Eighty-five, he goes right down the line and he kills every single one of them. And he isn't worth the little toe on a single one of them. And yet he kills every single one of them there. And, 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 and does this slaughter. And then beyond that, he then went to Nob, the city of the priests, struck it with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children, nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. He slaughtered all of them, even right down to their animals. He did that without Saul's uh, command. He did that on his own. You could wish that people like this did not exist in human history, but they do exist in human history. Just pure evil. This is the worst thing that Saul ever did, ever ordered and ever was a part of 
in, in his entire life, in his, in, in his entire reign as a king. It's just ghastly what he, he orders to do here. And what makes it more sickening of all is just a few days earlier, he had been in Nob fulfilling a vow to the Lord through Ahimelech. He's just doing this whole big God thing. And yet a few days can pass and he can slaughter 85 people and their whole families and everything that they own in cold blood. Very, it's just a terrible low spot story in the history uh, of the nation of Israel and it happened on Saul's uh, watch and with his orders and cooperation. Now, one of the sons of Ahimelech uh, who was killed, the son of a high tub named Abiathar. He escaped and he fled after David. He's just looking, where can he find David? He knows it's the only place he can be safe. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed, and he, he puts the responsibility on Saul, because it was his order that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. And so David said to Abiathar, I knew that day. When Doeg the Edomite was there, when I got the showbread and I got the sword of Goliath, that he would surely tell Saul, he said, I've caused the death of all of the persons of your father's house. Now he, he takes, he, this, is the, <clears throat> this is the softness of David's heart and his conscience. He, he feels a partial responsibility for it. But at the same time, in, as he explains things, it's, it's like, but... I, no one could have ever thought that anyone would have done this to your father and to the fellow priests as a result of my contact there. So he, it was Saul that was responsible, Doeg was responsible, but David did feel, because of his tender conscience, some responsibility in it. And he said to uh, Abiathar, he said, Stay with me, don't fear, for he who seeks my life uh, seeks your life, but with me you will be safe. And then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they're robbing the fleshing, uh, the, th- the fleshing thors. The, thre- the, the threshing floors. So... Keilah, now David's kind of roaming around with these 400 men. They're just going wherever they can find food and wherever they can be of some help, keep one step ahead of of, uh, Saul's pursuit. And so word comes to them, apparently some messengers from Keilah, and, uh, and David is informed of the fact that the Philistines have come into the land and now they are attacking Keilah and they're going to rob the threshing floors. Now this is kind of what's going on here in the situation. Keilah is an Israelite city and Saul ought to have been the one who rose up and was, would have thwarted any attack by the Philistines into the land of Israel and to attack these Israeli cities at at the time of their harvest where they would be very, very vulnerable. But he's too busy trying to chase down David in his uh, insanity and, uh, and, and killing priests in cold blood. He won't go out and fight Goliath. He won't go out and fight Philistines at this point. But he'll kill unarmed priests. And so they, uh, Saul is not fulfilling his responsibility as a king 
the people understand that, and they say, what's our hope to keep from having the Philistines come in and take all of our food? They said, get word to David. And so they said, sent word to David, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they're robbing the threshing floors. Now, in robbing the threshing floors, it tells us a little bit about what's happening here. It's pretty serious. I think you farmers would be pretty interested in this. Maybe we'll uh, have you stand up and talk with us about it. I'm just kidding, so be afraid that I'm going to do that. But you will relate to it. But what they were doing, and it was very, very common in the ancient world, if you were a marauding people, which the Philistines were at this point, you would wait until your enemy had done all the work of sowing the field to get the wheat there, all the work of of having it watered and all of that, all of the work of harvesting it, and not only then harvesting the wheat, but taking it to the threshing floors and threshing it in order to separate the chaff from the wheat until now you just have pure wheat grain inside of the bags. And what the Philistines did, which was common again in those days, is they waited till that last moment in the whole process so they could come in and steal everything without having to do any work. So at the moment, the time of the threshing of the wheat, the year's crops, that was a time in which farmers and cities were very vulnerable to being ripped off by invaders. And so, and it wasn't a thing where, and, and imagine those of you who are farmers, and, and all of us I think can uh, relate to it, imagine putting all of the work that you put into in a whole year into your orchard or into your crop, and then at the very end someone comes in and steals all of it. Leave a bad taste in your mouth. And, and, but it's, it's even worse than that because in those days, still true today, but we've got some margins because of the wealth of our nation. In those days, when they took your crop from you, then you didn't have food for the next year. And so your family could starve, your children could starve, and so this was a big old mess that was going on here and, and a terrible thing that was happening. David, therefore, inquired of the Lord. And so he doesn't just head into it just because there's a need here. He just doesn't, you know, pull off and there's the big D, goes into the phone booth and comes out. He, he inquires of the Lord uh, what he's supposed to do here, wants to be in, in, in God's will. And so he prayed to the Lord saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. So he gives him the command to go, and then he gives him the promise uh, of, of a victory uh, in it. But David's men, these 400 who were with him, they said to him, Look, uh, we're afraid here in Judah. We've got enough problems running away from Saul. And how much more will our problems be if we then go to Keilah and we pick a fight with the Philistines? And so these are, these are seasoned military guys, and they're basically saying to David, listen, we're barely, we're barely holding off Saul on one front in a, a battle with Saul in, in Judah. We don't want to open up a second front in this warfare and have both the Philistines and uh, Judah and Israel against us. And so they're just saying, David, this just doesn't make any sense to us. Because in, in any kind of a military situation, the more fronts you open up, the more vulnerable you become uh, to defeat. And so they get all of this. And, and so they say they, they don't have David's faith yet. They don't have David's relationship with God yet. They're going to get all that. 
but, but they don't even have his, his bravery at this point in time. And so they, say, they said, listen, so they, they, they object to, to this, uh, engaging in this battle. Then David does something in verse 4 that is just really tremendous as a leader. Then David inquired of the Lord once again. He, he does not view the hesitancy of the men that are under him uh, as a personal threat. He, he looks at it and he's humble enough to say, to, to recognize these guys aren't where I am maybe with the Lord or hearing the Lord. Their concerns are real that they have. And David could maybe have thought concerning himself, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I misheard the Lord. And so in a beautiful humility, he agrees to reapproach the Lord once again to make sure that he's really heard the Lord. Now, when you do that, uh, when you don't get up and say, I'm, listen, I'm the head of this thing and get this my way or the highway or get out, you know, hit the road toad or whatever kind of deal you want to do, you, 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 you'll maintain some number of people who will follow you under that if you're an extraordinary leader. But this really does, when people have a sense that, that this leader is concerned about me. This leader listens to what I have to say. He's concerned about the safety of myself and my family and all. It, it really does something uh, deep in their hearts in terms of loyalty. And so David, no pride, no arrogance, beautiful humbleness. He inquired of the Lord uh, once again. And the Lord answered him and said, Rise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines uh, into your hands. And David and his men went to Keilah. They fought with the Philistines. They struck them with a mighty blow. So it was a very decisive victory, as God had promised. And they took away their livestock. So whatever kind of loot they had gotten, or they brought their own livestock along in their marauding uh, party, they even uh, uh, you know, looted or, or stripped away spoils from the Philistines. And so... David, then notice that next word, saved the inhabitants of Keilah. That word saved is a big word. It doesn't say he helped them out, came along, got them over the hump. He saved them. Now, that saved it. Ever had anybody save your life? I, I remember, I've had, I, I, I remember the first time somebody saved my life that I can, that I can remember it. My mom gave my brother and I each a dime, and we went to Napa High School. And it was a summer afternoon, and, and it was enough money to get in and spend the whole afternoon swimming. The only problem is neither of us knew how to swim. My mom had some problems. <laughs> so I guess she assumed we were smart enough to stay on the, on the, on the shallow end. But man, they had a high dive at that pool. And I just looked at this. Listen, I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. And I just looked at all those guys and gals, and they were all older than me, and I looked up to them. I'm just a little old kid. And they're just running off the end of that thing, and they're jumping, and they're diving, they're doing all kinds of things. And they go down in the water, and they just go over to the side. I thought, you could, I thought it just looks like automatic with ducks or something. So I climbed the ladder and I head barreled off the end of that thing, hit the water and realized instantaneously that doesn't come natural. I could not swim. I could not swim and I am in very serious trouble. Time really does slow down. 
at that, that moment. And it went slow-mo for me, and I really thought I was through because I couldn't get up one more time to get even a gas. Lifeguard came over, just a high school guy or whatever. Might as well have been Atlas as far as I was concerned, you know. And uh, so he came over and Charles Atlas come over and he pulled me out of the water, got me on the side, told me not to go out of the shallow end anymore, but he saved my life. I would have given him my pocket knife. I'd have given him my unlucky rabbit's foot. I would have given him anything that I owned at that point in time. But I can't... I can feel it to this day as he's just talking to me. I can, I can see the spot on the side of the pool. I can see everything like it happened yesterday. And I remember feeling so indebted to him. It's a big deal when you save somebody's life. And David comes in and he saves Keilah. And you would have thought that this city of Keilah, by virtue of this, would have remained loyal to David all the days of, of their lives and yet they're not going to remain loyal uh, to, to him at all they're going to betray him very badly and so it happened when Abiathar the son of Ahimelech fled to uh, David at Keilah that he went down with an ephod in his hand and the ephod w- uh, held the, had a pockets in it that held the urim and the thummim which was the means by which they determined the will of God in that covenant and so Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah and so Saul said to himself God has delivered David into my hand so Keilah was a walled city, so David and his men, as we're going to see in a moment there, Saul looks and says, they have uh, trapped themselves in a walled city, we just have to surround it, and then we can uh, slaughter them. It's interesting, here's Saul, God has delivered David into my hand. He's got all this God talk happening and all this, like... Like God is for Saul and God is against the guy that he used to deliver Keilah. Again, everything's backwards when you walk away from the Lord. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. They've locked themselves in, we'll surround them, we'll wipe them out. And then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And when David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, found out about the plan, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here, I want to seek the Lord. And though David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand after all that I've done for them? Will Saul come down as your servant uh, has heard? O God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And then David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. What a disappointment. These aren't Philistines. These are Moabites. These are Israelites. These are God's people. Just as fickle and as unthankful as can be. And the, and the, interest, the interesting thing is, David doesn't get mad over the situation. Even when he becomes king, he could have said, all right, 
Let's go wipe Keilah out. One of the interesting things about David is just, just the way he was in the Lord. He didn't hold grudges. But he's confronted here with a lack of thankfulness and appreciation even among God's people. I don't think that anyone will ever have any longevity in their service to the Lord if we don't realize that for all of the people that will be thankful for what we do, there will also be men and women of Keilah who will be completely ungrateful for what it is that you do for them in your service to the Lord. That's just the way that it is. And you just have to accept that or you become bitter or one small group, the people of Keilah, will drive you out of the ministry when so many other people in the nation are excited about what God is doing in your life and through your life. So David, the interesting thing about him, and I think the thing that helped him maintain perspective, is that he went and he rescued Keilah because God told him to. He did it as unto the Lord. And when we do something as unto the Lord, then however people respond to that, it doesn't matter to us. We've done it unto the Lord. Obedience is its own reward. He will reward us for being faithful in the way that He deems fit. And then when I serve somebody else in obedience to the Lord, I don't bring an expectation that they will reward me, but only that the Lord will reward me in the situation. And then it keeps us from becoming embittered. Now, in my experience in the body of Christ, this is a very, very small group of people. God's, it, is the, it is the privilege of our lives to be able to serve the body of Christ on His behalf and to serve the lost. So this is not like some majority group of people, but they do exist. And, and they can leave a bad taste in your mouth. And David, to his credit, again, it, it didn't bother him. And uh, he, he listened to the Lord on it, went on about his business, never took revenge a, a, upon them later. And I think David had an understanding of the hard place that this whole situation, not only that Saul's madness and what he was doing was difficult for David, but he realized it was putting a lot of uh, Israelites in uh, difficult places. So David looks and says, hey, they don't want their whole city torn down and all the people that would be slaughtered in addition to us. So he looks at it and says, I get it, I can see it. And, uh, you know, they've, they've got to look out for their way of looking at things too. And so he goes on about his business. And so David and his men went, uh, and his men, about 600. So now he's moving from 400 men, now 600. They just keep trickling in, trickling in toward him. And they arose and they departed from Keilah and they went wherever they could go. So it was just like, okay, Saul's coming quick. We can't go out in kind of a uniform way. Scatter. We'll meet someplace else. Just find a place to hide and get away. And then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah. So he then halted the expedition. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and he remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. And that's a wilderness area uh, in a rugged, very rugged area, a part of, of, of Israel. And so he uh, 
stayed in that area. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. And so David saw that Saul uh, had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. And then Jonathan, Saul's son, he arose. This is going to be the final meeting between uh, David and and Jonathan. David knew how to find Saul. He knew how to work a word and and get an audience with him. And so he he arose, he went to David in the woods, he strengthened David's hand in God. Now that's a good friend, someone who strengthens our hand in God. We're going to see what he does here. He's going to encourage David in the Lord, he's going to encourage David in God's promises in his life, he's going to lift David's eyes off of the circumstances that are so hard and miserable and put them on God, the great future that's out ahead of him. And so he strengthens, it's just a beautiful thing that way that it's put here, he strengthened his hand, not with money or weapons. Yeah, we've got some AK-47s over here, and we've got some you know, grenades and this. And He strengthened his hand in God. That's what David needed. And he said to him, Don't fear, for the hand of, my, uh, of Saul, my father, shall not find you. He's never going to get to you, David. You're going to be king over Israel. I'm going to be next to you. He's not. He's going to die in a battle. But he's willing to be number two to David. He says, I'm loyal to you, David, and I'm willing to be number two. You have my support. That means so much to a young man when he's in a difficult place early in his ministry or her ministry. But David's a man, so we talk about men here on this thing, but applies to women equally. And I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. And so the two of them made a covenant to one another before the Lord. The Lord is the witness to it. And David stayed in the woods and Jonathan went out to his own house. The Bible talks about uh, fellowship with one another. Iron sharpening iron. When iron sharpens iron, uh, you've got iron coming against iron. Both pieces get sharpened. And this, is, and this relationship between Jonathan and David is one of the best pictures in all the Bible of ironing, sharpening iron. When they came together, they both left better in the Lord, encouraged in the things uh, of the Lord, and then, then the 49ers. But it was the Lord, for, I'm just kidding on that, so the, that was the main focus. 49ers are 3,000 years away. Then the Ziphites came up uh, to Saul at Gibeah, and they said, uh, and they kind of rat David out here, is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods in the hill of Ahakalah, which is south of Heshemon? And now therefore, O king, come down. This is where he's located. You come down according to the desire of your mad, crazy, insane soul to come down. And our part will be to deliver him into the king's hand. We'll deliver him up for you to slaughter. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord. Got this whole God talk thing happening. Oh, God bless you for delivering an innocent man and his 600 men to be slaughtered, for you have compassion on me. And probably for those of you who are like psychologists or psychiatrists, there are probably labels you can put on Saul here at this point. Uh, I don't know. Demon oppressed is good enough, probably. covers a lot of ground. So Saul makes the request and said, 
Please go and find out for sure. See the place where his hideout is. I don't want to go up there on a wild goose chase. Find out where, if he's actually where you've, you've, uh, you've told me he is. I want further intel, for I am told he's very crafty. What noise. For him to call David crafty, and so he's the crafty one, and so this is what he accuses him of, and he says, see therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides. He's just a lurker, you know. And come back with, uh, to me with certainty. And then when I, we have definitive, you know, good action intelligence, I'll go with you and it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. And so they arose and they went to Ziph. Uh, before Saul, but David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, uh, in, the tr- uh, in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek uh, him, they told David. So you either had some double agents among uh, the Ziphites who were playing both sides of this thing, or there were people uh, among the Ziphites who were more loyal to David at this point than they were to Saul. Somebody gets word to David that Saul is coming to, to get him, and therefore he went, out down, went down to the rock, and he stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. You ever see a cartoon as you're kind of growing up, and you've got somebody trying to get one cartoon character, he goes over here, and they, run, and they just keep going around just like this, and so they never can get, that whole thing is going on. Saul's got his army, and he goes over here, and Saul moves over here with his army, and they just keep making their way around the whole mountain that's big enough to allow that to happen. That's the whole deal that's... Uh, that's uh, going on. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take him. David is, David is very near being caught at this point. I mean, he really has no way out except that God delivers him. He's, he's, in, he's in real trouble here, uh, encircled and trapped. But a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. And therefore Saul had to return from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. And so Saul and his men, uh, they, they escaped. And they called that place the Rock of Escape. They named that, that location uh, after the event. And then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds of En Gedi. You see, over and over again through the whole thing, David is he's running for his life. This is a ten-year period in his life from where God, he knows he's going to be the next king of Israel and all these great things and everything until he ultimately becomes the king of Israel. is a long, long, hard trial. But all the way through, God is leaving his fingerprints for David. So that David can look and see, okay, I've got the whole world against me, it looks like right now. But God is leaving his fingerprints to let me know that he's keeping his promises, that he's with me, that he's for me. When that prophet in Gad, the, the earlier chapter, tells him, hey, listen, get out of Moab and get back. That, it wasn't just like, oh, oh good, I got 
you know, a 3A map, and now I've got to get out of Moab and back to, to Israel. What that would have meant to David is, God's talking to me. God hasn't lost sight. He's, I'm on his GPS. He knows I'm in Moab. He knows what I'm doing. And then here in this situation where it's like the last minute he's going to get caught, they're all going to get slaughtered, and then this thing occurs that forces Saul to then move off so that David lives, and all the way along David just sees God's fingerprints of faithfulness in his life. Sometimes you don't recognize it till later, but they're there. And God is going to be faithful to us, no matter what his call is on our lives. Do you realize that the reputation of God, His reputation for truthfulness, is bound up in His faithfulness to His promises to each and every one of us that knows Him in this world. He will be faithful to His Word, and He will leave His fingerprints for us to see and to, and to recognize that He is at work in our lives, even though the circumstances might be extraordinarily difficult at the moment. And it's wonderful when we see those fingerprints and we receive the encouragement that they bring to our hearts. We'll have the worship team come up uh, right now, and we we'll, haven't been able to spend a little bit of time in, in worship. Uh, after the teaching in the evening because somebody just keeps going on and on and on in the teaching of the Bible. So we'll get a chance to just let the Lord uh, maybe not have anything to do with what it is that we're studying this evening, but some kind of trial that you're in or some kind of step of faith that God is asking you to take or wisdom that you need, but you don't have the word from God yet on that. And just to lift these things up to the Lord and let the Holy Spirit brood on us tonight and finish up whatever needs to happen in our lives uh, tonight and for what He knows we're going to need of Him in the coming week.